3: I'm alright Tom, how are you? Hey lucky day Mr. Sumner Ciao Tom, how are you today? <laughs> That's a good question <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pote and you're listening to the Tom Snyder uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner The Tom Sumner Program Good morning Tom, how you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right
0: The Tom Sumner Program Old Fashioned Radio For a New Generation
2: Andrew, Tia, Violet, Dustin, Shahizee,
3: and the
6: Tom Sumner Program. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
7: Slave bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, the snow is glistening A beautiful sight, what happened tonight? Walking in our winter wonderland Gone away, is the bluebird here to stay? Is a new bird, who sings a love song as we go winter wonderland in the middle we can build a snowman we'll pretend that he is passing now. he'll say are you married we'll say no man you can do the job whenever you're in town later on we'll conspire as we sit and dream by the fire to face on a all the, the plans that we made walking in a winter wonderland it'll be be bado de de
6: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Sorry for the delay. We were uh, having a little trouble getting connected with my guest for this hour as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, known as the Tom Sumner Program. Really looking forward to this. A, uh, a book about um, Robert Riskin. Uh, called appropriately Robert Riskin. The Life and Times of a Hollywood Screenwriter is uh, written by a professor of American Film and History at the University of Manchester, who joins me by phone, Ian Scott. Ian, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. It's nice to be here. And and sorry for all the back and forth. I don't know what's... Uh, what was keeping us from connecting, but we're connected now. And I want to ask you about, although I'm very tempted to talk about your book, American Politics and Hollywood Film, and maybe we'll do that a little (laughs) later. But um, this book, uh, Robert Riskin, The Life and Times of a Hollywood Screenwriter is now out in paperback. And it's, an interesting story it's an interesting book to be talking about this time of year because of some of the screenplays of Robert Riskin some people might not recognize that name but they would certainly know some of the films that that he's written including some for Frank Capra
4: yes they would um, I think one of the inspirations for why I wanted to write the book in the first place was because. Here were a succession of films in the 1930s and 1940s, the classic Hollywood era, and many people might know the films, and they might know the director, you mentioned Frank Capra, but they almost certainly wouldn't have known the writer, and I wanted to kind of rehabilitate, if you like, um, Robert Riskin in this case, but uh, more general plan to try and rehabilitate some of those classic writers from that era who've largely been unheralded.
6: Well, there's something that's that's kind of funny that happens we we of course recognize directors of of film in America and and sometimes the author of the book that the film is based on but it's it's almost like the screenwriters are lost in the fine print.
4: I think that's very true. I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, uh, we have to remember, don't we, that here was an era of filmmaking where movies were being churned out at a rapid pace, and screenwriters were contracted to studios, told what to write, told what to adapt, sometimes given a little bit of leeway to write their own material, and they had to produce those stories and then those films in very quick order and yet there's such an amazing amount of quality, and many of your listeners would know many of the classic films from that era, um, and how good the writing and the scripts were, and again, an inspiration for me was that when I went back to the films, I thought, goodness, these films are so incredibly well written, and done so quickly, and I wanted to try and explore that, and and try and provide a bit of reasoning for the craft of a, a writer like Riskin.
6: What are some of the Riskin uh, screenplays that we would recognize readily?
4: Well, you know, in, in, in order, in fact. You know, one after another, Robert Riskin wrote from, early, from the early 1930s until the edge of World War II in succession, wrote movies like um, uh, American Madness, It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Lost Horizon, you can't take it with you. Meet John Doe. I mean, these are some of the sort of classic Hollywood movies of their time. They were incredibly successful, but they were also critically acclaimed as well. And that's one of the uh, one of the things that I guess was important to me about sort of signposting Riskin. Really, that he was a screenwriter. Actually, he was incredibly well known in the Hollywood community. Very successful. Um, and also critically adored by film reviewers who thought his scripts were witty and sharp. Uh, And he was was simply one of the leading screenwriters of his generation. So I wanted to sort of bring that to life and remind people who'd written those great movies.
6: What are the, the Capra films that Robert Riskin wrote the screenplays for?
4: Well, well, pretty much all, all of those that I, uh, I mentioned, and through the 30s and 40s, Riskin only worked with a couple of other filmmakers during that time. He notably wrote for John Ford, and he collaborated with one or two other uh, filmmakers and screenwriters during that time, but pretty much what he established, principally at Columbia Studios, and, and, and one of the things that you have to remember, people would know Columbia Studios today as a a great American filmmaking studio. But back in the early 1930s, when Riskin joined them and Capra at nearly the same time, it was a pretty small outfit. It was uh, a a sort of uh, backwoods studio. It made movies very little money. And really, Capra and Riskin helped almost single-handedly to make it a major studio. So those films that I cited, and particularly it happened one night, in nineteen thirty four with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, the first film ever to sweep all the major Oscars at the Academy Awards it won best film, it won best screenplay, best actor best actress uh, never been done before uh, and again, you know people would know those films perhaps today still, and you can find those films and they are available, but they probably wouldn't have known the people behind them so well and that was one of the great inspirations and really the pleasures of trying to find a little bit more out about Riskin and his life and career.
6: I, I, and I was just wondering about uh, two classic Capra films, if they were Riskin scripts as well. Um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life.
4: Yeah. Um, in actual fact, it's it's an interesting story about both of them Um uh, around about the time that Capra was looking to make Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, Riskin took a detour away from him. Uh, he actually had directed her film himself during that era, and he wrote for one or two other people as well and away from Capra. And, as it happened, then, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which seems an obvious Capra Riskin film if you if you look at those run of movies and uh, yeah. you watch them, and, and you, yeah, and you think about the scripts, you think well that 's obviously a film that was made by the pair. But the writers at Columbia were so good, and the colleagues that Riskin had, notably Joe Swirling, but also the person who wrote Mr. Smith, which was a, a person called Sidney Butman were just so attuned to the Columbia style and the Capra style that they really dovetail very very nicely Wonderful Life is a different kind of story it was made after the war and in actual fact though it was credited to a couple of writers Albert and Francis Hackett uh, it's subsequently been discovered that all sorts of people had a hand they weren't given recognition at the time but actually had a hand in the script and even Riskin, it appears, wrote one or two lines and adapted a little bit of dialogue for Wonderful Life, but he's not the central screenwriter.
6: There's, there's a, a story that Anne Serling tells about her, uh, her dad, Rod Serling, having been on the, the writing staff for the, um, the original Planet of the Apes movie, and he ended mm-hmm. up getting fired from that project. But they kept his ending, right? And it's and it's so fascinating because when you see the ending of that film, it, that is so clearly a Rod Serling moment <laughs> when Charlton right. Heston comes around the side of that that little peak of mountains by the by the sea there and sees the Statue of Liberty sticking up out of right. the ground.
4: Um, yeah, and and you know, even by the later nineteen sixties when that that film came out. That, that is such a, a classic tale of the way in which writers had been treated in Hollywood for a long period of time. They were largely seen as disposable. You know, their talent wasn't always appreciated and their scripts were changed and altered and bits of them were kept, lots of it were, were dispensed with, other writers were brought on board uh, and it's actually become quite a task for scholars to be able to unpick all of that and to find out where the credit is, is deserved and where writers really did contribute to some of the classic scripts that uh, people know and love.
6: How often are screenwriters adapting books to a screenplay or, or doing sort of the Reader's Digest version of the book?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, of course, today we know it happening quite a lot, don't we? And, and and because books that become bestsellers are already in our conscience, we get very um, attuned, don't we, to the way in which they're beginning to be adapted for film. So that that route and process is perhaps a little more well-known today. Back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, in in Riskin's time, it really probably wasn't as well known. There is one exception, and Riskin really, he worked on adaptations generally of short stories. And of course, that was a familiar tactic for the studios. Short stories didn't cost a lot of money. You could buy them fairly cheaply. You could ask a screenwriter to adapt something that would only be maybe 10, 15, 20 pages long quite a good length, in fact, for for turning something into a screenplay. So adaptations of whole books were much, much more difficult. But, of course, Capra and Riskin took on a best-selling and very well-known book in the 30s, Lost Horizon, James Hilton's best-selling book. Um, And that was quite a task for the pair because they were adapting a huge book and trying to make it into a two-hour movie. Um, spending a lot of money as well, by the way. You know, by that point in the later 1930s, um, Ian, Columbia Studios and their famous head, Harry Cohn, were starting to give them much more money um, Ian, to, uh, to, to, to make such films.
6: Ian, I hate um, to interrupt, but I have to go to break here. Can you stick around? Because I'm, I'm really interested in talking some more about this. Of course. All right, my guest is uh, Ian Scott, and we'll be back with more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they Hello, do darling. when this we go This is break. our Byron mistress
2: of the dark with Tom Sumner.
5: Visit mi.gov slash AG complaints for your connection to consumer protection.
2: Happy Holidays! Mia, Ita, Kelly, Caitlin. Caitlin. Lauren,
3: and the Tom Sumner Program.
6: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about Hollywood screenwriters, specifically uh, Robert Riskin has talked about in uh, a book that's just come out in paperback by Ian Scott, professor of American film and history at the University of Manchester, who joins me by phone. Ian, welcome back. Thank you for uh, sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that.
4: It's, it's quite all right it's very nice to be here thank you
6: um just before the break we were talking a little bit about authors and screenwriters because a lot of times books are uh, based on uh be- or movies rather are based on best-selling books and we saw that with um oh the the Philip Marlowe books and Perry Mason and, you know, some of these others, the, the film noir stuff. Um, but how much, how often did it come up for uh, screenwriter Robert Riskin that he had to adapt a uh, popular book? Or how often was he able to um, really come up with his own story?
4: Yeah, it's. I, I think that's one of the central questions about this era, really. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Riskin was able to do over a period of time, because he he gained a a deal of influence and attention, was to dictate the kind of projects that he and Capra wanted to take on. So when it came to an adaptation of a book, the most obvious one during their time was Lost Horizon in the late 1930s, a book that had only been published a few years before. Big bestseller, written by James Hilton, uh, story about an adventurer, Shangri-La, about discovering this sort of uh, uh, perfect paradise in the Himalayas. Uh, It was kind of boys' own adventure stuff. And they spent a huge amount of time, much, much longer, I, I, I was saying a little bit earlier, that scripts had to be turned around very quickly during that era. This was a film that took, by Hollywood standards, a long time to make then. And Riskin was never entirely happy with it, because, of course, to some extent, he was always at the mercy of using some other author's words. And that was not always his best mode of operation. He liked to construct his own words, his own scripts. You know, he came up with classic phrases and... You know this intuitive dialogue that was that that was being spoken between characters. That was very much his kind of standpoint and thing. And you you see it very much today. You know, I mean, there's a whole manner of filmmakers today who were influenced by Capra and Riskin, both in their scripts but also in the kind of films that they uh, films that they make. Uh, and that lives on. So it was tough for him ad- adapting, but by the same token, he only ever really wrote one proper, fully realized original script. A lot of the time, they were adaptations of short stories, or they were journalistic pieces that had been sold to the studios, and he was creating a scenario, a world, a narrative around these short stories.
6: He was pretty well acclaimed uh, throughout Hollywood, um, at least to insiders, as a screenwriter, but how was he as a filmmaker?
4: Yeah, he, I mean, he had some success as a filmmaker because he went on to be a producer for a short period of time. And he made a musical film, When You're in Love, in the late 1930s, which uh, which had Cary Grant in it. And it did okay. Um, he didn't take very easily to directing. Um, You know, some some writers did. Some writers saw it as their natural calling, particularly those who saw themselves. uh, I mean, he was a big friend of somebody like Billy Wilder when he first came to Hollywood. Well, Wilder is a classic example, I guess, isn't he, of a writer-director emerging in that period. Riskin found it hard to sort of do both things at the same time, to think about the script and to direct. The other thing that he was most successful about, though, uh, was when he joined the war effort uh, in 1942. Riskin joined the Office of War Information, and he made a series of documentary films that were hugely successful being shown around the world, and they were almost entirely forgotten after the war. And that was another reason why I wanted to draw his attention draw the attention of him and, and, and the work that he 'd done, because they are incredibly important, incredibly resonant to uh, the world that we live in today
6: and, and i don't think people realize just how influential he was. How much of quote the moral of the story was from the original um Work and and how much of it was Robert Riskin?
4: Uh, surprisingly, because uh, you know one of the things that again screenwriters would would uh, have to uh, have to endure through through this period was that they would turn in you know full length scripts. Uh, they, there would be green light green lit to go ahead. Directors would take them on board but then they'd be subject to changes, even in production, even while shooting, the scripts didn't always stay the same. And Riskin was lucky that a great deal of his finished scripts that emerged as the shooting scripts largely left unchanged. So, a, you know, a good, good proportion of the words that were eventually spoken in a whole this whole succession of movies, this sort of collection that he put together from the early 1930s, probably until the late 40s, um, were pretty much all his. That was quite rare, really. And the thing, again, that I, I, I think perhaps is less understood was just how much he was admired by his contemporaries. You know, there were brilliant, brilliant screenwriters in Hollywood throughout that period. Dudley Nichols, Nunnally Johnson, Jules Furman, Herman Mankiewicz. And they all often cited Riskin as an inspiration and someone who they felt was the sort of the prototype, if you like, of the way in which the Hollywood script in the talking era as it emerged in Hollywood, um, how it should be written.
6: Were there any challenges to Riskin from the the censors?
4: there, there were always challenges, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, al- almost all of those films, uh, after 1934, the production code was much more rigidly enforced, Joseph Green, the chair of the, of the co- production code administration, was of course always on the lookout for things that were seen as salacious or un-American, or which, you know, just shouldn't be shown to audiences. So the films were were always being scrutinized in that way. But the clever thing about them was that Riskin could get away with dialogue and could get away with storylines, some of which were quite risky sometimes for the 1930s. And yet he was so smart in the way that he did it. The dialogue was so life-affirming, so witty and funny, but really, the censors largely passed a lot of it by. They were, they were largely really, um, you know, just so it enraptured by the scripts um, that it was, it was fine. The one exception, Kappa and Riskin made a very significant film, their last film properly together, just before they went their separate ways at the beginning of the war, which was Meet John Doe. And Meet John Doe was a political movie, it was about a newspaper owner who was trying to exert a kind of fascist takeover of the United States, and there was a lot of controversy over over the script, and there were things that the studio uh, was uncomfortable about that even Riskin and Capra were uncomfortable about and thought would be challenged, and that did have a lot of scrutiny to it.
6: You know, I mentioned earlier, Ian, that that I'm fascinated about your book, uh, American Politics and Hollywood Film. We've we've done a couple of uh, shows, usually around the Oscars when there's one of these films up for something. Um, but uh, one of my all-time favorites is uh, The Last Hurrah. Right. And and I just wondered what what gave you the idea to do a book. On politics in American films,
4: I guess the simple answer is it hadn't really been done before in <laughs> uh, in a way. Nobody um, had done it, so I thought, well, I'd better do it then. I guess um, I, in in part it was it was happenstance uh, and 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 look a little bit. Um, my own background and my own interests started in California and California politics. And I quickly discovered that by researching and writing about California politics, you actually learned an awful lot about the Hollywood film industry, because there were there were people who were involved in that and who were giving money away to you know to to candidates. Um, and I'd always been in, interested in the in the film industry, and really in a way I put the two together. You know, I I, I began thinking about the way in which. Politics had inserted itself into movies. Capra was already a big in influence. You've, you've cited the movie that largely started it off, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Right. It's, perhaps the, you know, it's perhaps the definitive political film, isn't it, in, in, in that way, and has been replicated many times. And I just wanted to think about how people had reacted to that, what, what influence those films had had, not only what influence they'd had on audiences, but what influence they would had perhaps on politics in the United States. You know, and the more I discovered, the more I found out that actually political candidates and then people in office began, you know, actually cited movies and cited characters and talked a lot about those kind of films, much more than you might have thought. So it just became more fascinating to me to, to discover how political movies had woven themselves into the culture. Uh, and that's how it started.
6: Yeah, I'm. Tr- I'm trying to remember the one about uh, uh, Senate confirmation hearings, and the, the title just escapes me. Um, had a huge. Uh, oh, in
4: the in the 1960s, advise and consent. That's the one.
6: That's the one. Um, see, that one is not as well known, and yet it it is such a. a fascinating look inside how that that senate confirmation process works in real life um and and so i've been fascinated by this subject for a long time so i I apologize for getting off topic here a little bit no
4: it's quite all right i mean the 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 film that you cite and i suppose this is a good you know turn back to risking in one sense you know, there there are actually a whole series of of movies like *Advice and Consent*, uh, which are incredibly educational in one sense. They were films that sort of gave you a fairly realistic insight into the process. Whether that was, as you say, Senate confirmation hearings, or you could think about movies like *The Candidate*. Talking about elections, oh, yeah. or you can think about political biographies. Uh, there's a huge technical biography of Woodrow Wilson during the war in the, in the 1940s. And there were films that went into a huge amount of detail. They, they took a great deal of time to determine how the actual process took place. But of course, one, one of the things that came out of that, and sometimes why some of those films weren't as successful is because that, that tended to sort of drain the entertainment. You know, where, where was the, the narrative? Where was the real excitement in, in a film like that? That's part of the genius of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It tells you a lot about Washington, tells you a lot about politics, and yet it's a drama that has people gripped to their seats. <laughs> that, that's true. That, 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 that's, the, you know, that's the combination you're forever searching, isn't it? You want audiences to be absolutely ra- captivated, but at the same time, you want to make them think, and that's, that's the trick.
6: Um, getting back to uh, Robert Riskin, um, when did he pass away?
4: That's, a, that's in many ways a crucial element of the story. Tom because um Riskin fell ill at the end of the 1940s 1950s he had a early 50s he had a major stroke and he ended up in the motion picture home in the early 1950s for five years or so nearly before he passed away he was only 58 years of age when he died um and in in a way that that Story as well, tragic as it was, and if you like, that provided my drama. That that was my narrative. He was a screenwriter who, you know, whose star shone incredibly brightly for a period of time, but who faded away largely because uh, he wasn't there to give his account of things. In in later years, Frank Capra would write a very successful but somewhat controversial autobiography in the 1970s which recaptured his career um but that that biography in many ways missed out many of the collaborators that he'd worked with over the years including specifically Riskin and so as time went on and the decades passed Riskin's name just went into obscurity in many ways people really he was not alone it's it's true of other screenwriters but him particularly having been so successful really went off the radar. People really didn't know him at all or know the kind of things that he'd done. So when I got a chance to talk with the family, um, his daughter, Victoria Riskin, would later become president of the Screenwriters Guild in Hollywood, you know, and and a very high-profile figure there. And she was immensely helpful and kind in letting me see papers and talk about the family and sort of discover Riskin all over again. Uh, And that was a big impetus in many ways to try and tell a story that he couldn't tell because he simply wasn't there when the histories of Hollywood, the early Hollywood, were starting to be told.
6: How did Riskin get started screenwriting?
4: Like a lot of people, uh, he came from the Lower East Side of New York. He had aspirations to be a journalist. He worked in all sorts of little industries, uh... as he was as he was growing up but very interestingly he worked for a shirt manufacturer in new york and uh... as you do in those days the shirt manufacturer also had an interest in the burgeoning film industry in florida as it was at the time before before hollywood really took off Whiskin got sent down there he got captivated by making movies uh... and he tried his hand and, and went out west and uh quickly became sort of ensconced with a number of writers, a number of people who were interested in, you know, what he had to say and the kind of stories he was, he was starting to think about. And uh, Harry Cohn and Columbia came to know this. Written, Riskin had written a play. He, he dabbled on Broadway a little bit, and he'd written a play in the mid-20s, a play called Bless You, Sister, it didn't do very well, it got a little bit of attention, but it didn't do uh, tremendously well. And as luck would have it when he first arrived in Hollywood, the first writer's room meeting he came to, um, there was a conversation going on. Frank Capra was in the room. Harry Cohn was in the room. <laughs> and as he he sat there, he slowly it slowly dawned on him after a few minutes that they were talking about this script and whether they should, you know take this film into production, and after a few minutes, it dawned on him, this was his play that he'd written, uh, that somebody was adapting, Um, and Capra wanted to make it, and the thing that attracted Harry Cohn to Riskin was, Riskin said, you really don't want to do this, this was a lousy play, and it'll make (laughs) a lousy film. And Harry Cohn thought, "Yeah, that's the writer for me. If, he, if he's willing to trash his own work, then he'll be, you know, he'll he'll want to do quality writing. So I'll have him." And that's how it started for him.
6: That's uh, that's that's taking self-deprecation to a whole different level.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was, and and he did that. You know, he was he was. Uh, he was very astute and very, very clear-minded about what he wanted. Uh, and again, that, that really went against the grain. You know, writers did what they were told. But Riskin was largely sort of in, in on the process from the first meeting, if you like. You know, what's the story going to be like? Who are we going to cast? You know, who do, who do we want to play this particular character? Because he had already in his mind you know, exactly the way in which his script would look on the screen. And and Harry Cohn said that. You know, that's why he valued writers. He said people like Riskin know already when they start writing what the film's gonna look like. Well, those kind of screenwriters are golders really, aren't they?
6: Well yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize how um how disposable writers were, um and and how much they were Told what to write, and and um, you know we we on the outside we tend to think of writers as having all this creative control that just they didn't have.
4: No, they 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 really didn't, and and you had two types of writer in a way at the time. You actually had very high profile novelists, basically Scott Fitzgerald, William Faulkner, uh, right. And P.G. Woodhouse, people like this, who'd all made their way, they'd all gravitated to the West Coast, and, you know, as, as um, Woodhouse very famously said, he just got paid an awful lot of money not to do very much, um, because <laughs> nobody would really be very interested in his stories, and the stories that came his way, he thought were terrible, you know, and, and, and really weren't, were, were beneath him in some way. And then you had go-getting screenwriters like Riskin who were just determined to make their way in the industry. They didn't have the profile of the famous novelists, but they had a sort of energy about them that was really what created the industry, which was what made Hollywood, really, in the in the 30s and 40s, in the classic era.
6: Ian, what's next for you?
4: Um, well, I'm, 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 I'm working at the moment uh, on, uh, in, as it happens, I'm doing a little bit of work here with a director in the UK who's going to make a documentary on Frank Capra. So oh. we're doing a little bit of work together to see how that might come come together uh, uh, and work on. And uh, right now I'm trying to put together a book that's going to look at um, Hollywood's relationship with the Cold War uh, and the way in which Cold War movies and Cold War propaganda Influence writers and directors in Hollywood in the 1940s, 50s and 60s.
6: Fail safe.
4: <laughs> Fail safe, yeah. Um, I, I've just been, I, 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 one film keeps coming, I, I, in various work I've done and, and, and various people I've been lucky enough to talk to, one film particularly comes back. Time and Time Again, which is a a film I'm sure your listeners might know called The Manchurian Candidate from the early 1960s. And uh, in a a way, it's a sort of defining Cold War paranoia thriller. Um, And it it also says a great deal about the way in which Hollywood was changing at the time uh, and the way in which writing was changing and the impact of the Cold War on Hollywood. Uh, And those are some of the things I'm interested in doing.
6: Hey Ian, um, we're just about out of time but I'm having so much fun talking with you and there's so much to talk about um, with these old films and writers and all of the talent that went into them. Um, But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present and future. Do you have a website?
4: Um, Well that's very kind. People, People can find me at the University of Manchester here in the UK and of course if they go to the university press of kentucky website they'll be able to find out more about the robert riskin book that's just come out uh and you can of course purchase it there if you'd uh if you wish to um but yeah i have uh i have a i have a page on the university of manchester website simply look for ian scott university of manchester you'll find me there and you'll find some of the work and some of the other books that I've been working on and writing over the years.
6: Well, Ian, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, thanks. Keep up the good work.
4: Thank you, Tom. Real Ray. pleasure talking uh, to you. Uh, this uh, is the we'll
6: story. be back with the uh, last segment. You're listening to the Tom
2: Sumner Show right now, and now, and now, too, and even now.
8: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID nineteen. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines
5: Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
6: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
7: Rod Serling.
3: Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I
5: would have been headed for the
8: Twilight
5: Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone.
3: All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I
0: got a feeling something strange is about to happen.
3: In the Twilight Zone.
0: Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Programme.
6: started humming Christmas carols real he said when you were five years old your name
2: was Greg you left me milk and cookies and a note that said
1: dear Santa all
7: I really want is a puppy I love him forever and I'll name him buddy And so
2: you did for 15 years Till Buddy passed away and you cried many tears And you lost your faith like so many do But I got a little something to tell you that's true The love you give never really goes away And it all comes back on Christmas Day So here's a little something that I want to give to you
6: And Santa handed him a puppy named Buddy Jr.
2: What the judge said? Yeah, don't Well, the judge sat back and his face turned white. His lips started quivering. There were tears in his eyes. He looked at that puppy wrapped up in his sleeve and said, Good God Almighty, I believe. Philip, set that man. Everybody got to believe, I believe. And As he rode off out of sight He said, Merry Christmas to all And to all a good night
1: Sleigh bells ring in the lane, snow's glistening, a beautiful sight. We're happy tonight, walking in. Say, are you married? We'll say, no, man. But you can do the job when you're in town. Later on, Later on we'll conspire as we dream by the fire to face unafraid the plans that we made, walking in a winter wonderland.
6: That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll be back Monday with another edition of the show. I want to say thanks to all the guests on the show today. Professor of American Film and History at University of Manchester, Ian Scott from the U.K., talking about his book robert riskin the life and times of a hollywood screenwriter before that debut novelist tom liebacher talking about his book a gift most rare and we started out with flint's own uh, broadcaster historian uh, author storyteller michael j thorpe talking about his newest book michiganians you should know see you monday good night everybody